Amen, amen. You can grab a seat. And let me pray while you're doing that. So our Lord, we thank you that today we celebrate that the grave was empty and we just sung that, we've declared it. Help us to see now clearly the claims it makes upon our lives and the power that it makes available to us. Father, help me to make your word plain now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 2 first. We're so glad that you're here. George already welcomed you. I'll welcome you again if you are new, if you came with some family this week, or maybe it's just your tradition to always come to church on Easter. We're glad that you're here. My name's Trent. I'm the senior pastor of the church, and uh, we are, again, just really glad that you're here. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the cross and how the cross creates an ethic for life, how it shapes the way we live, that we're supposed to hold everything uh, in our lives up against the lens of the cross for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And that it's supposed to define for us, define for us what we might say is both a mission and a morality, right? That we are supposed to ask the question of any situation I come across in life, because I worship a crucified Savior, what does that mean about what is right to do and good to do in this circumstance, in this situation? So what we've been trying to do is investigate the idea that the cross is more than just something which is able to make us right with God by paying a penalty for our sins, although it is that. It's an ethic for all of life. And so we've been looking at that reality. And so if the cross is this lens now, we come on Easter Sunday to think about the resurrection, to think about the fact that Jesus, yes, died for our sins, was crucified, but he didn't stay dead, that he rose from the grave and that he reigns in victory at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's what we believe. And because he is resurrected, we recognize that something must be different about life. Now, Again, I'm not sure where you are. If you're here all the time, if it's your first time, if you believe God exists, if you don't believe God exists, but here's what you need to know. Let me just bottom line it for you a little bit right here at the beginning. The resurrection, the empty grave makes a claim upon your life. It makes an absolute declaration that your life belongs to God and you must and should give your worship to Jesus Christ. And whether you've accepted that or believed it or not, the resurrection makes a claim upon you. But here's the good news. It makes a great claim. It also makes amazing promises. It makes amazing promises. If the cross is a lens through which to look at all of life, then do you know what the resurrection is? The resurrection is the guarantee of the power to live out that lens. It's the guarantee that you will be filled with power. So here's the deal. We talk all the time about things God calls us to. He calls us to live according to his word and he calls us to live out a certain mission in life to help others know God and find satisfaction in him through Jesus Christ. And we talk about those things all the time, but let us not miss that the resurrection doesn't just say, what the resurrection does is it promises that very thing we've been called to do, we have been given immense power to do. And I think that far too often we fail to take up the power of the resurrection. The Bible again and again doesn't just tie the power of the Christian life to the fact that we have a crucified Savior, but to the fact that we have a resurrected one. That we have a king who didn't stay in the grave, who died for our sins, but rose to defeat death and to defeat the grave so that we might know that all of life can be infused with a different kind of power, with a different kind of life. 
Now I want to share with you, I was, I was going through this week and I just did a quick survey for myself to remind myself, what are all the things that are promised to us because Jesus rose from the dead, because the grave was empty? Can I share a few of them with you? Can we talk back in this church? Can I share a few of them with you? You wouldn't know it from our regulars. I'm messing with you guys. I'm messing with you. Listen, actually, before I share that list with you, listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 11, because it is so rich. Here's what Romans chapter 8, verse 11 talks about when it talks about the power of the resurrection. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so I don't know if you caught what that's saying. It says this, right? If, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, it's talking about God the Father sending his spirit to raise Jesus from the dead. And it says when he raises him from the dead, what he's done is guarantee that that spirit can now live in you. So the same spirit, for those who follow Christ, the same spirit who caused Jesus to go from lifelessness to life, the spirit that came and entered into his being and raised him from the grave now lives inside of you. That's what Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 11 is saying. That spirit lives inside of you. And the reason he's pointing out that, that, that it's the spirit who resurrected Jesus from the dead instead of just saying the Holy Spirit now comes to live inside of you is because he wants you to understand how powerful this spirit is. And he says, that same spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. Now, in the context of Romans chapter 8, he's not just talking about the fact that he's going to be able to resurrect you from the dead when you die. That he's going to be able to bring you into the presence of God and when Jesus comes back to resurrect that body from the grave. Those things are true. But that's not what he's talking about in Romans 8. In this chapter, when he says he will give life to your mortal bodies, do you know what he means? It's in the context of him talking about how do you live in the spirit, that's, that's what the whole chapter is about. How do you live following the spirit of God? And he says, the spirit himself will come into you and will give you life. That same resurrection spirit will come and give you power now to live for God. That's what essentially Romans 8, 11 is all about. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you who call upon the name of Christ and will fill you with power to live for God. But church, how often do we fail to take advantage of the power that is ours through the resurrection? How often? And friend who is not in Christ, you who, are, who make no claim to worship Jesus, can I just tell you that you are uh, one, running from something that will ultimately not be run from in the long run. And two, let me say to you, you are forfeiting an amazing kind of life. Now, can I share with you just, I just want to create a direct line between power for life and thriving and the resurrection of Jesus. So listen to all the things that the Bible says we have, we who believe, that we have when we believe in Jesus. The resurrection gives you power over death. The resurrection gives you power over the pleasure of sin to cause you to desire things that you, things you used to desire, to no longer desire them if they're not pleasing to God. The resurrection gives you power to have an unchanging identity. In other words, to be so certain of who you are and whose you are that you never shake or waver in understanding who you are. Resurrection gives you power to be completely certain of your eternal destiny. The resurrection gives you power to overcome the need to always please everyone. Somebody say amen to that. 
The resurrection gives you power to have an undying hope. The resurrection gives you power to have God see you as perfectly righteous when he looks at you. The resurrection gives you power to bring healing to others. It gives you power to find purpose in suffering. It gives you power to defeat demonic spirits. The resurrection gives you power to see through empty philosophies about life. The resurrection gives you power to have humility and authority at the same time. The resurrection gives you power to be forgiven and to forgive. And lastly, the resurrection gives you power to live each moment believing that you are loved with a love you don't have to earn. Now that's just 15. We could go on because the Bible again and again ties this, this incredible, uh, these incredible promises of power to the resurrection of Jesus and says, if you have believed in him, then all those things are yours, not just because he died, but because he rose from the dead. And they are yours to claim, they're yours to walk in, they are yours to live out. Now here's what I recognize. For some of you who are not followers of Jesus, you probably hear those things. And here's my hope is that you recognize that some of these things you find are inherently unstable in your life. That you find that often you feel your identity and this sense of, of who I am and where my value comes from perhaps feels a little unstable. It feels like it goes up and it goes down depending on your circumstances. Or you feel like your level of hope kind of goes up and goes down based upon your circumstances. Or you know, you name any of those things that as I read, you might think to yourself, yeah, like I don't really, I, I find that I'm very up and very down sometimes when it comes to those things. And here's what I would offer to you. You have the ability to receive, if you will come to Jesus, if you will take him at his word, believe that he rose from the dead and that he paid the penalty for your sins through his death. If you will take that, you have a power available to you to have all of those things. Church, those who follow Jesus, here's my guess, is that you heard me read those things and you've known for a long time that Jesus is the answer to every single one of those. You said, yes, Jesus is the answer to having an unchanging identity. Yes, Jesus is the answer to having a living hope. Yes, Jesus is the answer to being able to marry humility and authority together and to walk in those in such a way that it's beautiful and winsome and rather than uh, being something that's, that, that can't be brought together. You've known that. But my guess is also that you have often failed to take up the power of the resurrection to live the reality of those things. And today the challenge comes to both of us. It comes to those of us who follow Jesus. It comes to those of us who make no claim to follow Jesus. What will we do with the power of the resurrection that has been made available to us in him? What will we do? Will you take it? Will you take it up? And will you live in it? So let's talk about two. I, I read 15 to you. We're not gonna talk about all 15. There's another service after this one, all right? We're gonna talk about two. I wanna talk about the last two that I mentioned. That the power of the resurrection is the power to believe with certainty that you can be forgiven, no matter what you've done or where you've been, and that you can actually forgive others. And just think for a minute if you need that. And then I wanna talk about the last one. The resurrection is the power to believe with unwavering certainty that you are loved with a love that you do not have to earn. I've worked with students for a lot of years. And in all my years with students, the thriving and flourishing of those students, I think, boils down to something this simple. 
Those who thrive, those who flourish, believe they are loved. And those who do not, do not believe they are loved. It's really that simple. It's really that simple. I've seen it again and again and again. Those who don't believe their love, they look for it in unstable places. They crave it, they long for it, they yearn for it. They will look for it anywhere and they will take a cheap substitute if they can get it. But those who believe and know that they are loved with a love that is stable and undying and pure and good begin to thrive and flourish. It doesn't matter their background, their socioeconomic status, doesn't matter if they're hungry, if they're full. It's really that simple. But let's talk about forgiveness first. I jumped the gun, I got into love, I was too excited. Look at Colossians chapter two. We'll put it up on the screen. Colossians chapter two, verse 13 through 15. And we're gonna hit these quick. So listen to what it says now. So I want you to catch it. In verse 13, it says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, it's just essentially saying that you had sin. You had this problem called sin. You did things that didn't please God, that didn't honor him. You rejected his lordship over you. We've all done it. The Bible tells us we've all done it. So it says, and you, that's all of us, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now there's your key phrase. God made those who believe in Christ alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses having forgiven us all our trespasses. So pause there for a moment. Do you see what he's doing here? What Paul is doing in this letter to the Colossian church is he is linking right there in verse 13 the idea of being forgiven with the idea of being raised with Christ. He says, because you have been forgiven, you have been raised. In other words, there is no category of Christian that is forgiven of their sins and not raised into a new kind of life with Christ. In other words, what he's going to say next in verse 14 is the debt of your sin was paid by Christ. It was, it was paid in full through his death on the cross. And so that's where we know our sin gets paid for. But the question becomes, is it just that my sin gets paid for and then I must try and live out the rest of life trying to be grateful enough or thankful enough or be filled with enough faith or whatever it may be to be pleasing to God? And what he says is, oh, no, no, no. To be forgiven is also to be raised. Now, when Christ was raised, he took on a new life. And so what Paul is saying, and he's gonna say it again in 2 Corinthians chapter five, if anyone is in Christ or any, if, if he or she is in Christ, then he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Same idea here in Colossians chapter two. What he's saying is the reason you can know with absolute certainty that you can be forgiven is because the resurrection guarantees you a new life. You're no longer what you were. You're now something completely new. You have been raised with Christ. Do you see it? And if you have been raised, if you are something new, then that something new is a completely righteous being. It's someone that God has shaped and formed into something entirely different than what you were before. Here's the thing that most Christians do. 
We, we believe we are forgiven for our sins, at least at the beginning, and then we begin to act as if nothing has changed about our life, as if we have not been reshaped and remade into something entirely new, and therefore we think that we are still the victim of our sin and therefore probably can't be forgiven. Right? Some of you might even be thinking now, Trent, if you knew what I have done, you would know that that thing cannot be forgiven. And my friend, to say that to God is the same as saying the resurrection did not occur. To say to God, I cannot be forgiven, is the same as saying the resurrection has not occurred. Because for those who believe, the fact that the resurrection occurred guarantees a new life. You have been raised with Christ. So the first thing he does, the first thing he does to help us understand that we can be forgiven and to link that with the resurrection is to say the resurrection makes you something new. You can be forgiven. You are forgiven if you're in Christ. The second thing he does is look at verse 15. I think this is incredibly powerful, not something we think about all that much. But he says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, who's he talking about there? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Well, you might think he's talking about kings or generals of armies of the day. He's not. He's actually talking about the devil and spiritual forces of darkness. And he says, through the resurrection, through the crucifixion, and then through the resurrection, he has triumphed over them and disarmed them. Well, what are their weapons? Their weapons, the weapons of the enemy are accusations of your sinfulness, accusations of your inability to be forgiven. My guess is you've heard this whisper, probably not audibly, but my guess is you have heard that whisper in your life at some point, there's no way you can be forgiven. Don't even go ask that person to forgive you because there's no way they'll forgive you. It's absolutely not possible. You've done too much, you've gone too far, you've asked too many times, cannot be done. Those are the accusations of the enemy. And what we are hearing here in Colossians chapter two is a great truth. That through the resurrection, Jesus has triumphed over those dark forces, triumphed over the devil, triumphed over demonic forces. So that when they come in and whisper to you, there's no way you could be forgiven or there's no way you could forgive. You are to be reminded, oh no, no. Those accusations have no more venom. They have no more power because my king has risen from the grave and I have been resurrected to new life with him. Do you see the connection between the resurrection and forgiveness? You can both know that you can be forgiven and you can also forgive others. And here's the deal. You might be saying, okay, I see, look, I see how those things help me believe that I can be forgiven. I have new life in Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is the power of the devil to accuse me is taken away. So both those things should make me, because of the resurrection, able to walk in a belief that I can be forgiven. But that doesn't mean I'm gonna be able to forgive others and my friend, you're wrong because that's exactly how he wants to help you forgive others. By reminding you that what's true for you is also true for who else? For them. For them. You can forgive others, one, because you're no longer the old person that has to hold on to those grievances because the old person held on to those grievances because they felt like it would be unsafe and make me vulnerable to that person if I were to forgive them. They might be able to hurt me again if I were to forgive them. So I'm gonna hold the grudge, I'm gonna hold the anger, I'm gonna hold on to unforgiveness all the while not realizing you're only killing yourself. And by holding on to those things, I'll be safe. But the new person who is raised with Christ says, oh no, he is my protection, he is my safety. I can forgive because he protects me and I don't have to fear anymore. 
So you're not just enabled to know you can be forgiven, you're enabled to forgive. You are enabled to forgive. And it also takes the venom and the power out of the accusations that the enemy wants to make about that person he doesn't want you to forgive. When you know you must forgive, and you, you can't find the resource or the power to. The resurrection is the key because it strips, it disarms the devil of his accusational power and enables you to say, I can forgive because God loves that person and I will forgive them. Friends, uh, Jesus often, he does it in Luke chapter six, he does it in Mark chapter 11. He often ties our ability to be forgiven with our willingness to forgive others. You may or may not have heard this, but essentially he says, forgive so that your Father in heaven will forgive you. Now you might wonder, I thought forgiveness was just contingent upon my faith. I thought forgiveness was contingent upon my just trusting in Christ and I'll receive forgiveness. But then is this saying that it's contingent upon if I don't forgive someone else that God will not forgive me? Well, the reason Jesus is making that link is not because he's saying you won't be forgiven until you forgive. He's saying if you don't forgive, you haven't understood forgiveness and therefore you're not forgiven because you still think your forgiveness rests upon your ability to do something that pleases God, your ability to be sorry long enough maybe, to feel bad enough, I don't know what it is, something and what he's saying is if you think your forgiveness rests upon those things and therefore you won't forgive someone else because you think until they've done enough to earn my trust back, I won't forgive them. Or until they've done enough to show me they're sorry enough, I won't forgive them. If you're holding on to unforgiveness towards someone else, it's because you have not truly understood what forgiveness is from God that you have and therefore you do not have it. To fail to forgive is to fail to believe that you are forgiven it's to fail to believe the resurrection has occurred. All right, let's move to the next thing. The resurrection gives you power to live each moment believing you're loved with a love you don't have to earn. And I'm gonna move fast here, okay, church? But listen, Romans chapter eight. Listen to what he says in verses 34 and 35. He says, who is to condemn, right? So there's that accusational language again, like, the devil can't condemn you. Another person can't condemn you. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died for our sins. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So let me just paint the picture of what Paul just said to you. Because in Romans chapter eight, what he's saying is this. He's saying, no one can condemn us or separate us from God. And the reason is not just because Christ died for our sins, but because he rose from the dead. And now he stands at the right hand of the Father in this position of power, talking to God on our behalf. That's what interceding means. Saying to God, they're mine. They belong to me. When they pray, I bring their prayers to you. I want you to hear their prayers and answer them, not because they're worthy to be heard, but because I am worthy and they are mine. And so what he's saying is this. Jesus stands at the right hand of God. He's resurrected. He is alive, not dead. And because that's true, nothing can separate us from his love. In other words, if death could not prevent his love from getting to us, then there's nothing else that could even come close to trying to keep his love from getting to us. And he's gonna go on, he's gonna list, neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth, neither anything else in all creation. In other words, there is nothing that can prevent God's love from getting to you. It's one thing to be loved, right? That's a great thing. 
Yes, if you've been loved. It's a great thing to be loved. It's another thing, right? But the challenge is, what if you're loved by someone whose love cannot reach you? By someone whose love you cannot experience because they're on the other side of the world or they are, they are held captive somehow. There's a way in which or a reason for which that love cannot reach you. That love becomes hard to experience and understand and know and it becomes hard to see how that love might have any impact in your life. And what this is telling us is that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, there is nothing that can keep his love from getting to us. Resurrection is the key to understanding that you are loved. Now, the next thing he says, and it's so brilliant. Look at verse 38 and 39, because we'll close up here, right? He then says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's something you may have missed there. In verses 34 and 35, it says, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And then in verse 39, it says, nothing will separate us from the love of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, God's love for you does not hinge upon you. It hinges upon the fact that Christ loved you died for you and rose from the dead so that the Father's love now comes to you because he loves the Son. And will the Father ever stop loving the Son? So he will never stop loving you. The Father will never stop loving the Son, therefore he will never stop loving you. So it doesn't rest upon your performance. It doesn't rest upon you being good enough or obeying the rules well enough or being smart enough or doing anything to please God for long enough. It rests solely and squarely upon the one who stands at the right hand of the Father, resurrected forever, never to die again, and declaring with all power, I am King and Lord, and I love you. Therefore, the Father will love you. I don't know where you're getting your love from, but this is better. Right? The love of a spouse is great. It's not as good as this. The love of a friend is great, but it is not as good as this. Love of a child, pretty darn great. Not as good as this. There is no love like this love. The resurrection offers you power to believe and to know that you are forgiven. It offers you power to know and to believe that you are loved and so much more. But church family, hear this. Here's how you take that up. Because you might be asking the question, well, how do I, how do I actually like access that? Right? The way you access it is by preaching it to yourself every day. And then surrounding yourself with others who will preach it to you as well. When you begin to believe that you're not loved or that you can't forgive, you surround yourself not with people who go, yeah, you're right, it's probably too hard. Surround yourself with people who go, no, no, no. Our king has been raised from the dead. How dare you say that's, not, that's too hard? How dare you say you can't forgive? Our king is resurrected and his power is in you, giving life to your mortal bodies. Don't you remember Romans 8? Don't you remember Colossians 2? No. Preach the gospel to yourself. Every morning, alone with God, remind yourself you have a resurrected king, crucified for your sins and raised from the dead to give you power to live. Preach the gospel to yourself. Surround yourself with people who would do it. 
And come here. Look, if, if this is like your once a year that you come, can I give you a challenge? Come four times in a row sometime this year and just see if it doesn't make a difference. Just try it. See if, see if taking Jesus out of that place of being your, your once a year tradition and beginning to move him towards the place of being an all-encompassing source for life and truth doesn't begin to change something. Promise you it will. If you think it won't, I guarantee you haven't tried it. All right, let's pray. Our King, we love you. You are good and marvelous and wonderful. My prayer right now, Lord, is, is just, would you let your word now land in the hearts of your people, in the hearts of all present here in just the way that you intend it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are able to give life to our mortal bodies, which means it doesn't depend on some human preacher. Your word is powerful and it's true and it's able to, to meet us right where we are and to shape our thinking and to shape our feeling. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that it would. I pray specifically for those who have felt that they could not be forgiven and that they could not forgive. And for those who fail or struggle to believe that they are loved, I pray specifically for them today that you, by the power of your spirit, would communicate what is true, that they would let go of that feeling and take up what is objectively true, what you have declared, that they can be forgiven, that they can forgive, and that they are loved. Would you bring that about through the power of your spirit? We sing now to you. We sing now to you, the worthy one, Jesus, our King. In your name we pray, amen. Let's close our service together with a song, shall we? Why don't you stand together with me?